Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, let's turn to, uh, let's turn to Joshua chapter 7 and 8 this morning. So a couple of things as we begin. First of all, again, to the live stream people, we're glad you're watching with us. Miss Jean, my mama, uh, Michael Tuck's watching this morning, Joni. So there's a lot of you watching by live stream. And so we're glad you're here. I'm, li- I'm leaving some people out. Some people have asked me, when are we going back inside? Let me tell you, let me remind you, we, it kind of didn't start this way, but one of the reasons we're meeting out here is those people that are really trying to protect themselves because of their underlying health conditions and things of that nature. We've been meeting out here so everybody would feel comfortable being able to social distance, etc. I don't. I did put on deodorant. I did shower this morning. I do not know why we moved the trailer this way. You move further that way. Why y'all can't be right here where I can see you? And uh, I promise you, well, I guess I am high. So I guess if I have it, it could go on you, right? So <laughs> maybe, is that why y'all are sitting so far away from me? It does make me feel a bit uh, unloved up here because you're so far away from me. But anyhow, so I, I don't know about going inside. Several of you have asked me even this week, when are we going back inside? The gnats are terrible. It's a little bit humid. We've been dodging the rain every, every Sunday. And uh, so anyway, I'm going to try to speak fast this morning, make sure we dodge it this morning as well. Uh, we're, we're still looking at that. Maybe, maybe soon we're going to go back inside and, and just whenever you feel comfortable coming back inside, come back and, and be with us, you know. So anyway, kind of introduction. Chapter 7 of, and 8 of Joshua. When we left the destruction of Jericho last week in uh, chapter uh, 6, the last line says, The Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. That's an upbeat note, but it's going to turn south really, really quickly, just actually with the, next, with the next thing that happens, the next page in our text. Chapter 7 begins with the sin of a man named Achan, and because of it, Israel is defeated uh, by the next, uh, next city they go up against. They were told that they were not to take anything from Jericho. They were not to take any spoils of war. But Achan did. In verse 21 of chapter 7, we'll find that he took a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter. He took them, and nobody knew except from him. But the Bible says that God's anger burned against Israel because of that. So as soon as they defeated Jericho, they sent some spies up to Ai. The spies came back and they said, and actually, by the way, I mean, I'm not just going to make this statement. It's Ai and Bethel. They're evidently two cities that are very near together. We talk about Ai. It's probably the bigger one, but you'll see Bethel interwoven in there. And so they suggest that Joshua only send 3,000 men. They do that and they're routed by the people of Ai. Uh, 36 men die. Now we read that number, but that's 36 families that lost a dad or lost a father, right? So this was a serious thing. Joshua and the people of Israel, they are just mortified. They're, they're grieving. They make a statement that's horrible. Here's the statement they made. They said, oh, if only we'd have stayed on the other side of Jordan. That's the same statement 40 years earlier that Israel made. Oh, if we'd only stayed in, in Egypt, right? At least they didn't say that. But they said, hey, if only we'd have stayed on the other side of, uh, 
of Jordan. The Lord tells Joshua to get up off the ground. Evidently, he's on the ground weeping before the Lord. He's afraid, by the way. He's afraid that being defeated by this little city of Ai and Bethel, these two cities, that, that people were going to just come against him because, hey, we can be so easily defeated. And so that's what he's thinking. God says to Joshua, verse 11, he says, Israel has sinned. Get up off the ground. They have violated my covenant that I have appointed for them. They have taken some of the things set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put things in their, with their own uh, belongings. He tells them, the reason you lost is because Israel has sinned against me. And so I've taken my blessing off of you, and that is the reason why uh, you have lost. And so he tells him, get up off the ground, consecrate yourself, and tomorrow bring Israel before you, and I'm going to point out who's the culprit is. And so the next day they do that, and tribe by tribe, it gets narrowed down to one tribe. How they did that, I don't know. Probably the heads of the tribe came, and God said, oh, it's this tribe. And then the, then the clans of that tribe, their heads came, and it's this clan. I, I guess that's how they did it. Maybe they, they threw lots for it. I don't know. But it gets narrowed down to a clan, then family, and then man by man. And the culprit ends up being the grandson of Zabdi, a man by the name of Achan. So he gets pointed out, you're the man. And when he gets pointed out, God, uh, Joshua says to Achan, he says, Achan, confess. Tell us what you did. And Achan confesses that he stole the items. And they then take Achan, uh, his family, that is his wife and his children, and they execute them by stoning. They burn all of Achan's possessions, including the people. And then they bury all of that, including the stuff that he stole. They, val they, they bury it in a valley that becomes known as the Valley of Achor. Achor meaning trouble. The, the same root to the name Achan and Achor are the same. And so some have suggested that Achan's name was Troubler. And uh, so the valley where they buried him, burned him, killed him, became known as the Valley of, uh, of Achor, the Valley of Troubler. That's what it says in, uh, in your Bible. And even at the time that this was penned, that valley was known as the Valley of Achor. So when God, uh, then God says to them, go to Ai and, uh, and go back to battle. I'm going to be with you. They do that this time, though Joshua's taking no chances. He, he sends 30,000 men. They go by night. They hide behind the cities. He sends 5,000. They go to the west and hide in the, off to the west. And then the next day, he takes men. This is a great, uh, I guess, uh, military move. He takes men to go like they did before and fight against them. And it doesn't take long before Joshua feigns that they're being defeated. And they run just like like they did last time. And this time the people of Ai and Bethel decide, well, we, we've got them on the run. We're going to chase them. And of course, that's what they did. They chased them. When they chased them, the 30,000 men came out from behind and they, they killed the city. They destroyed the city. They burned the city. When they had the men out of the city and the men have swarmed the city, destroyed it, the 5,000 men from the west rise up. Joshua turns around and the Bible tells us that they destroy every single one of the men. Uh, verse 17 says that not a man from either city was uh, not destroyed. They burned Ai to the ground, Pres presumably Bethel as well. They burned it to the ground. They killed 12,000 people that day. And uh, they hung the body of the king of Ai on a tree for the day. And then in the evening, they took him down. They, I guess they buried him under a pile of rocks like everything else. They plundered the cities, took everything of value out of that and gave it to the people. And, uh, and then they... Um, 
and then they left. And at the time of the writing, the, the city was still desolate. Now, that's a pretty gruesome story, isn't it? I mean, and in some ways, so foreign to every one of us, okay? Let me tell you why. For one, we cherish individual responsibility and accountability, not necessarily group accountability. And we don't kill our enemies in war. So this story is just really hard for us to... Um, Hard for us really to wrap our heads around in some ways. What I hope to do in, uh, in just a few moments is I'd like, to, I'd like to share with you four lessons that we can glean from this uh, sin of Achan, from the sin of this man. Four lessons for us today that I think are very appropriate, things that we need to hear, things that we need to be reminded of. But I'm also going to try to address, it probably won't be satisfactory but, uh, to you completely, but I'm going to try to address the, the elephant in the room, the, the killing of all of those people, and then the destruction of everybody. And then even God's holding Israel accountable for the sin of one man named Achan. So we'll talk about that. So let's, let's move forward. Here's the first lesson that I'd like you to glean from, these, from this story of Achan, AI, defeat, and, 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 uh, and victory. Here's lesson number one. Our sin is never hidden from God. Now that's probably a no-brainer. You know that if you're taking notes on your first thing. It's our sin is never hidden from God. And this is illustrated all throughout our Bibles. In, uh, in chapter 7, verse 10, the Lord then says to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I have appointed them to, for them. A a everybody else didn't know. They were oblivious to what Achan did, but not God. God knew what Achan did. Now, all throughout the Scripture, we see this established. Proverbs 5.21, For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. Hosea 7.2, But they never consider that I remember all their evil. Now their actions are all around them. They are right in front of my face. Psalm 69.5, Oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Jeremiah 16, 17, for mine eyes are upon all their sins. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity, another word for sin, hid from mine eyes. In the New Testament, we find the story of, of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember the story? I mean, they sold a piece of property. They said, hey, here's all the money for it. But it really wasn't all the money. It was only part of it. And God knew, God knew their sin, and, uh, and God's going to kill them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, I'm not sure why it doesn't impact us that God always knows our sin. What I mean by that, why doesn't it impact us to keep us from sinning that God knows our sin, but it, it doesn't. And I, I think maybe one of the reasons is that over the years and over time, we have, we've come to this, this thinking that maybe sin isn't really a big deal to God. Maybe God doesn't really care all that much about sin. And so maybe that's the reason why the fact that God sees all our sin doesn't keep us from sinning. Maybe it's the fact that we don't fear God. I told you this recently, but, uh, or I've told you this a couple of times probably, but one of the most influential lesson, uh, messages in my life over the last year or so has been one by Dr. Hawkins, O.S. Hawkins, and he preached on the fear of God. And he said, you know, the fear of God is not that God's going to take a baseball bat to my head and beat me up. He said, the fear of God for those of us that love God is, is that we will disappoint God. Think about this for just a moment. The fear of God 
The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, etc. We're, we're told that God loves us. We're told to fear God. How is it that we have to fear God who loves us, right? Who's already borne the wrath of God against us. Well, Lewis Hawkins makes a great case, I believe, for the fear of God being this idea that we are afraid of disappointing God, that we fear letting him down or, or not living up to his desires for us, just like we wouldn't want to disappoint our parents or we wouldn't want to disappoint somebody who we really admire or value. And he suggests that the fear of God is, is that. And if, that, if he's right, maybe the reason that God, knowing all of our sin, doesn't keep us from sinning is because we don't really give a hoot about God. We don't really care that much about whether we're disappointing him or not. And I know I struggle with that. I think, I think it's, it's possible that we can all end up struggling with, you know, not really caring about God's heart and not really believing that God cares much about our sin at all. But, but I think this story and I think the fact that Jesus would incarnate God, would become one of his creatures and then die for us, I think that speaks really highly to how God feels about sin. So lesson number one is that God is always aware of our sin. Lesson number two, God was disappointed in Achan for sure, but he judged him as well. So here's lesson number two. Our sin is always judged by God and often can affect our very lives now. We'll say it again. Our, our sin is always judged by God and it can actually affect our very lives even at this moment. So the wages of sin is death and Achan will pay for his sin with death. He's going to be killed because of his sin. That's the wage of sin. We learned that throughout the whole of the word of God. Chapter 7, verse 24, says, Then Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, the gold, his sons, his daughters, his ox, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought it to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all of Israel stoned them to death. Now, all of us die because of sin. All right, we're all going to die because of sin. We're going to die because of Adam's sin. We're going to die because of our own sin. It's the punishment that God has placed on all of us as human beings because of our sin. But what I want you to note is that though Adam and Eve didn't die right away, they would eventually die. Sometimes God exacts the punishment of death immediately on people for their sin. In other words, they, you know, the Bible says, if you, the day you eat of the fruit, you're going to die, right? Well, they didn't die right away. They, uh, God removed the tree of life and they would eventually, they would eventually die. But sometimes, sometimes God actually takes our life as a punishment for sin immediately. There, you know, uh, the, one of the cases would be uh, Achan in this particular case. Achan dies as a result of his sin at that particular moment because of his sin. Ananias and Sapphira would die because of their sin at the moment they did. They died for, as a punishment for their sin in that moment. The Israelites are ordered to kill all the Canaanites, and that was God's immediate punishment of sin on them. Now, I know that's, that's not really satisfactory for us because we're like, well, wait a minute. Why doesn't God just kill them? Why doesn't God do it? Why is he asking Israel to do it? And, and, and I don't have an answer to that. I really don't. But I, I do want you to see that when God does ask Israel throughout the Old Testament 
to wage war and to destroy everyone. He is enacting the wage of sin on all of those people in that particular moment. We're all going to die, but God at times asks, not ask, God at times takes our life immediately. Now I want to say this to all of us. This is where we should so rejoice because Jesus is alive. He resurrected from the dead. He overcame death. And we're going to get to overcome death as well. That's the promise of God, that he's going to raise us back to life. But the wages of sin is death. It's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. So here's, here's, here's what I want you to see. Though that we're all going to die as a penalty for our sin, God sometimes will take your life immediately. In, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, there's, there's a statement by Paul that because of the way people were taking the Lord's Supper, that some had died. They had died as a result of what they were doing. Now, we might not like that, and it might seem unfair. And, and maybe it is unfair. In other words, why hasn't God killed me because of my sin up to this point? Why hasn't God killed you up to this point for your sin, the wages of sin? You're going to pay. God's going to judge all of our sin. We're all going to die. But why does God let me live? Why does God let you live? Why, why, it's, why does, for some people, he takes their life immediately? My point of this lesson is simply this, and Aiken illustrates it. Though, though we'll all die for our sin, God sometimes takes your very life in that very moment for sin. Now, we're not concerned about that. I mean, we don't seem to be all that concerned about that. Why? I guess because we don't see God doing that all the time, or maybe we can't even correlate between when he does it and when he doesn't, so we don't seem all that concerned about it. But I do want you to hear it. I do want you to understand it. Because of our sin, you and I, can, we, God can take our lives. He's just in doing that at any time he wants because of our sin. All right? Lesson number three. Our sin often affects those around us even those we love most. I'm going to say it again because I know some of you are writing it down and, and I left some big spots in their spots. Our sin often affects those around us, even those we love the most. In Joshua 7:11, we read, God says, Israel has sinned. He doesn't say Achan has sinned. He doesn't say one of you has sinned. Well, I mean, that's the impl implication. One of you sinned. But notice he says Israel has sinned. Because of Achan's sin, God is holding all of Israel accountable for what he did. And they lost a battle. They lost the battle of Ai and Bethel over that. And they lost 36 men. 36 men died. 36 men lost their lives. So I read this to you already, but when, when God, Joshua has Achan in front of him, he says, Today the Lord will bring trouble on you. So Israel stoned them to death. And they burned their bodies, they threw stones on them, and raised over them a large pile of rocks that remains still to this day. But it wasn't just Ai who paid for his sin. It was his whole family that did. His wife died because of Ai's, I mean Achan's sin. His children died because of Achan's sin. Now, we don't know that they were little children. We don't know what age they were. We don't even necessarily know that they weren't complicit at some level, but they weren't complicit because the children and the wives, they weren't fighting in the battles, right? So they didn't take the stuff. Achan took the stuff. But yet his whole family is punished by death for Achan's sin. Now, I have to say for me as a Western modern individualistic man, this is hard to fathom. 
It's hard to wrap my head around. Why is all of Israel responsible for Achan's sin? Why is his family, his children, his wife responsible for Achan's sin? That seems unjust. And I, and I, and I have an answer, but like I said, it may not be satisfactory to you. But, but here's the answer from Scripture. And that is that, that God often views uh, us as a whole group and holds the group accountable for an individual sin. In other words, that he can actually hold a family accountable for my, my family accountable for my sin or your family accountable for, for your sin. And I don't, I don't even just mean dads or fathers. I mean any of us, you know. Uh, God often sees us as a group and, and not the individual actions of one. It's not that God doesn't cherish us as individuals. It's not that he doesn't see us as individuals or that we can have an individual relationship with him. But he obviously, listen, he obviously in these days values the corporate identity of Israel as a nation. And he valued the corporate identity of a family. And he treated families as families and a nation as a nation. And Israel was, ended up being culpable because of what Achan did. Now, Israel was a special group. They were the group, they were the nation that God had established, that he, uh, he put them together from Abram's family. And he said, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my nation. I'm going to have a special relationship with you. He treated them as, as a whole. And he did that with families as well. Unsatisfactory, isn't it? I mean, still for us, it's just hard. That doesn't seem right or just, but that's how God is looking at folks in this day. There is a, a major sense where God does not pull out the individual and hold him accountable. He's holding the whole group accountable. Now, I need to tell you that that's going to change. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, here's what God said. This is the, they're coming out of Egypt. And this is, what, this is in the wilderness. It says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sins and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the father to the third or fourth generation. So what he's saying there is that he's going to judge people as a group for even generations to come. Not just the generation that's there, but generations to come. I'm not sure if the thought was... We would hold each other accountable because we're a group. I don't know if that was the thought. Maybe it was. But, uh, but God's going to revisit that, and he's going to change that, and he's going to move from group responsibility to individual responsibility. And I want to tell you why I think he made the change. And again, I'm speculating because it doesn't say. But I think he made the change from group accountability to individual accountability because instead of working to hold us all accountable as a group, what it ended up doing was everybody was excusing their own sin and saying, we're being judged and punished because of what my forefather did. It's not my fault. It's not my sin. It's granddaddy's sin. That's the reason why we're experiencing this, especially in Israel. And so I think that's why God changed. In the book of Ezekiel, this is a millennium later. This is about a thousand, it's over a thousand years later. The prophet Ezekiel says to the people on God's behalf, he says, this is chapter 18 of Ezekiel. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. 
what do you mean by using this to Israel? What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the children reap what the father did. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the Father is like the life of the Son, both belonging to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. Verse 18 of chapter 18, he gives us an example. As for his father, he will die for his own iniquity because he practiced fraud, robbed his brother, did among his people what was not good. But you may ask, why doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Since the son has done what is just and right, carefully observing all my statutes, I will certainly, he will certainly live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The son won't suffer punishment for his father's iniquity, and a father won't suffer punishment for a son's iniquity. The righteousness and the righteous person will be on, his, will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. So there's a change that takes place over a millennium later. And again, like I said, I, I, I don't know why God looked at at individuals with corporate responsibility before. Like I said, I'm speculating. Maybe it was so that we would keep each other accountable, but because of our sinful hearts, that wasn't working. God says, I'm not doing that anymore. And he changes with Ezekiel. And and that's where, listen everyone, that's where our Judeo-Christian heritage has affected our country the way it has. It has affected our country because individual responsibility and individual freedoms and individual personal accountability is is at the root of who who we are as, a, as Americans and who we are now as, as followers of Jesus as well. So we believe in individual responsibility because of what God has done here or what God has said in Ezekiel and how it's affected the world uh, after that. And I don't know about you, but I rejoice in that change. You know, I'm glad that I'm not accountable for my father's sins in the sense that, that somehow I, you know, he sinned, so I've sinned with him. I'm glad that my children don't suffer my sin, right? And their children won't suffer from their sin, per se, or won't be judged for their sin. But having said that, here's the lesson. This does not mean that my sin doesn't affect anybody else. My sin absolutely affects everyone else. And it affects the group that I'm a part of. It affects this church. It affects my family. So does your sin. The Apostle Paul said in the New Testament of the immoral man in the church in Corinth, he said, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? His point was that our sin affects everyone around us. It's not that God's going to judge my children for my sin, but my sin does affect their lives. Listen, sin brings brokenness and brokenness can't help but affect everyone around you. If your sin is uncontrolled anger, I guarantee you your children are reaping the effects of that brokenness in your family. If if your sin is drunkenness, then your whole family is being affected by the sin of drunkenness. You're you're wasting your family's money. Your family is probably living in greater poverty because of the sin of drunkenness in your life. If you you experience the sin of divorce, I, I guarantee you that your children are going to be affected by that negatively. If, if, uh, if you, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but, but sin always affects those closest to me. 
And so my family is affected by that. But it's not just as a family. We as a group, as a church family, we are affected by each other's sin. You know, if, if one of us in our church family, a man or woman, if you represent us and you are unkind to people around you and, and they know you're part of us, then they can't help but just associate you with us, especially if you're trying to talk about spiritual things in some unkind way. Or if you're ungracious or angry or drunk, they will, they will judge every one of us by you. Your sin affects the group. Now again, the, the distinguishing mark is that God doesn't judge, if you would, or punish us for somebody else's sin, but our sin has great ramifications on those all around us. We are the sum of our parts. It's probably been 20 years ago, but uh, we uh, had a gentleman that was attending our church, a regular tender. He wasn't part of our church, but he ended up being convicted of child molestation. And uh, I remember a reporter calls me and the reporter is going to report that he attended our church family. He's going to report that he was a member. And I said, he's not a member, but he is a regular attender of our church. But I asked the reporter this. I said, would you please not put that in, uh, in the paper. I said, because this man wasn't involved in any of our children's ministries. In fact, wasn't involved in any ministry other than just uh, attending our church. And I said, if you publish that, our church will be associated with this man's sin. And he's not convicted of doing anything in our church, et cetera, et cetera. My point is to give you an illustration. That's an extreme one, right? And everybody would say, oh yeah, I can see how that would affect the group. But what I want you to see is even our little sins affect the group and bring brokenness and negativism against our families or against, uh, against us as a church family. Or even our, let's expand it, you know, even in our country, right? Even in our country, when our country does something wrong, it affects our, the reputation of our country around the world. So, so this is a principle that goes really, really big. Our sin definitely affects those around us. And now lesson number four, my final one. Um, Here's my lesson. Here's lesson four. Let's confess our sin and turn from it while there is opportunity. When judgment comes, it'll be too late. I'm going to say it again. Let's confess our sin now and turn from it now while there's opportunity. Because once God's judgment comes, it's too late. Now, I can't prove what I'm going to say now, but I'm going to lean into it. I believe it's true even though it, it, it doesn't say so in the text, in the story. But I believe that if Achan had confessed his sin and dealt with it before God's judgment, before the judgment against Israel or before the judgment against his family, if Achan had dealt with his sin prior to that, I believe that God would have forgiven Achan. Instead, what we find is Achan does not confess his sin, does not deal with it until God brings him into this court of judgment before, before the elders of Israel. And uh, so he does confess his sin. I, I will, I'll say this to Achan, and I appreciate this about Achan. He, does, he doesn't hide from what he did. He confesses it in verse 19. 
He says, Joshua says to him, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you've done. Don't hide anything from me. And so here's what Achan replies. He does. He says, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did when I saw amongst the spoils a cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold. I coveted them and I took them. And you can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the the cloak. Achan confessed his sin, but he still died for his sin. And I believe he died for his sin because judgment had already begun. Here's what the prophet Isaiah would say to Israel in Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Now, granted, this is after this event, but I still think it would have held true. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. Again, it doesn't say this in the text, but I believe that if Achan had gotten home and in his heart had repented and gone to Joshua and said, Joshua, I took what was from under the ban. You know, I, I think there would have been discipline, but I don't think God would have punished him with death. I think he would have, he would have forgiven him because, as Isaiah points out, God is gracious and compassionate and forgiving. And we see God represented for us in, in the Lord Jesus. Now, let me, let me apply this truth, assuming I'm, I'm, I'm right. Let me apply this truth to us today because I think there's two fronts for which this truth would apply. Number one would be for those of us who follow Jesus, confess your sins and, and uh, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Bible says that God disciplines every son he receives. So here's, if you're not following what I'm saying, here's my point. If you belong to Jesus and you're walking in sin, then, then know this, you, you, are, you are under the discipline of God and God may discipline you. And I've already made the point, you may disagree, but God can take your life at any moment because of because of your sin. And the punishment may not be death at this moment, but it may be something else. So if, if God, if you are in sin this morning and you know you're sinning and you know God's convicted you, but you still continue to walk in it, you don't deal with it because of whatever reason, then, I, then, then by the grace of God, I'm admonishing us, deal with it today. Deal with it before the judgment of God comes. Because when the judgment of God comes, you know, if God takes your life, it's too late. You've lost your life because of your sin. But, but God can, there can be other disciplines that don't, that don't lead to death. And, and so deal with your sin today. Man, don't harden your heart. I was reading in my, I was reading this morning, uh, just sitting there reading from the Gospel of Mark. And two different times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says to the people that, he's list, that are listening to him, he says, you guys, your heart is so hard. Don't harden your heart. Listen to me. Respond to me. What I'm saying to you this morning is don't harden your heart. Listen to the Lord. If there's sin in your life, turn from it. As hard as it might be, turn from it, everyone. But that's one front. Here's the second front that I would apply this to. And, and I've already talked about this. All of us will be judged because of our sin, and the judgment is death. The wages of sin is death. Over and over and over again, the soul that dies, the soul that sins shall die. You know, death, eternal death. You know, however you want to define that, but death is the, the wage of sin. The Bible says it's appointed to, for man once to die, and then what? And then judgment, right? So when death comes, there is, there is no given, there is given to us 
no hint in the scriptures that there is an opportunity for repentance after death. And so my, my, my application of this would be to us that are believers, hey, the discipline of the Lord can be serious. You know, deal with your sin today. Repent, confess it, turn from it. But if you're, if you're not walking in faith, if you haven't put your trust in the fact that Jesus conquered death for you so that one day you can conquer death, if you're not trusting in Jesus, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you're not walking in faith, trusting Jesus, pleasing him by faith, and then it says, and seeking him, if you're not, then, then do it today. Turn today, turn to Jesus. Because then, it, then if judgment comes, just like it was for Achan, it's too late. At, in the book of Revelations, there's this great white throne judgment when all the dead are raised, the the, the, the those in faith and those without faith. And those in faith are given eternal life. And those without faith are thrown in the lake of fire, which God then defines for us and says it's the second death. Don't, don't die. Don't die for your sins. Turn to the Lord. He's offering you life, eternal life. And not just any life, but life with him and life with me. <laughs> that was a joke. Life with the people you love. I mean, isn't that awesome? Getting to be together. I mean, we'll be together forever and ever and ever. And somebody said, I don't want to be with you, Jimmy, forever and ever. I get it. But you know what? But hey, I'll be fixed. I'll be fixed. And I won't be selfish anymore. And I won't be wanting my way. And, and, and neither will you. And there'll be harmony. And there'll be, no more, there'll be no more national upheaval. And we'll have a king who's righteous, who's ruling from I'm assuming Jerusalem, but ruling over his, his kingdom. And he's going to be fair and right and just. And, and again, we'll be without sin. So I'm not sure exactly how he'll be ruling over us. You know, he'll be a king, a benevolent king who, who we have a, all have a friendship and a relationship with. I tell you, don't you want that? I mean, that's what God's offering to us. And if you're willing, it can, it can be yours as well. There's a lot of less, other lessons in this story. We could talk about the power of greed to tempt us, right? Tempted Achan. We could talk about the power of greed. Covetousness is likened to idolatry. We could talk about how victories today make us trust our judgment for tomorrow. You ever notice that? I did really good today, so I think I've got everything under control for tomorrow, and I don't need to seek the Lord. That's evidently what Joshua did. We could talk about how God sometimes asks us to sacrifice today, i.e. Jericho, don't take anything under the ban. But tomorrow, when you, when you conquer Ai and Bethel, you get everything. You get, so sometimes God asks us to sacrifice, and sometimes God gives us an abundance. We could talk about that lesson, but I'm not doing that. We're going to look at the last part of chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles, look at it with me. I'm going to read Joshua 8. The battle is over. They've won. They've, they've destroyed. They've done what God's told them to do. Verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel. Just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been, been used. They were to offer burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrifice fellowship offerings on it. And there on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had 
written in the presence of the Israelites. So back in Deuteronomy 27, before they're about to cross over into the promised land, Moses had given them this whole book of instructions. It's the book of Deuteronomy. But in chapter 27, he says, On the day you cross over Jordan, you're to go to Mount Ebal, and you are to do what Joshua did. Create an altar there, uncut stones, write the law, the Ten Commandments on it, offer fellowship sacrifices. And then he said, Moses told them, and what I want you to do is I want you to repeat the covenant laws. And then I want half of you to be on Mount Ebal and half on Mount Garrison. And there's a, evidently a valley in between the two. The, the, the altar's in the middle. The Ark of the Covenant's in the middle. And, and so this is what Joshua does. It's two months after they've, probably about two months after they've gotten across the Jordan River. But again, it's when, when Moses says, on that day you cross, he doesn't mean on that moment. What he means is when you cross over the Jordan, do this. They had to battle Jericho and Ai and Bethel to get to Mount Ebal. Now they're at Mount Ebal and they're doing what God had told them to do through, through uh, Moses. And so he's got, Joshua's got half the people, six tribes on either mountain. They've got the stuff in the middle. And here's what the Levites do. They read the law. I'm going to read you just a little fraction of it. Verse 33. All Israel resident, resident aliens, citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the Ark of the Covenant, facing the Levitical priest who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerasim, half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the Lord's servant had instructed or commanded them earlier concerning the blessings, blessing the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read, read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the dependents, the resident aliens who lived among them. Here's a little sample of what he read. The Levites will proclaim in a loud voice uh, to every Israelite, the person who makes a carved idol or cast image with a which is detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman and sets it up in secret is cursed and all the people will reply, amen. And the one who dishonors his father and mother is cursed and all the people will say, amen. And the one who moves his neighbor's boundary marker is cursed and all the people will say, amen. There's a whole list of laws like that. And as I was reading, I wonder where that, where, is that where preachers get, you know, when they say something, they go, amen. You know, they want you to do what Moses said they were going to do here. So they would read these laws and the people from both sides would say, amen. So be it, right? So be it. After they had finished, after Joshua had finished reading that, then they had the blesses and the curses. Half of the people would yell a blessing and then half would yell a curse. Here's a sample. This is from, uh, I believe this is from 20, chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. But it says, now if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commandments I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God and you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country and your offspring will be blessed. The land will be producing. Your offspring will have, uh, well, your livestock will have offspring, including young herds and newborn flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed and, and on and on and on. Oh, let me read one sentence. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. And your enemies are going to be scattered in front of you. So half the tribe is yelling these blessings to them, right? Then the other half are, are yelling the curses to them. 
Back, back across the other side. Here are the curses, a sample of them. But if you do not obey the Lord your God be, uh, by carefully following his commandments and statutes, I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. And you'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. And your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed. Your land and produce and young herds and newborn flocks, they'll all be cursed. And you'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. So that's what they did after they won the Battle of Ai Bethel. They had a worship service there on Mount Ebal and Mount Garrison. Now, what were they doing that day? They were doing two things. And I want to end with this. They were doing two things. Here's the first thing they were doing. They were reminding themselves of the God they served and the, and, and the statutes of the God they loved. They were reminding themselves of God's heart and God's desire for them. They were reminding themselves of the blessings of faith, and they were reminding themselves of the curses of unbelief and disobedience. I would like to say to you this morning that every Sunday we get together, may this be our, may this be our goal in part, to remind ourselves of the blessings of loving Jesus and following Jesus and being filled with faith and faithfulness the blessings of belonging to him and acting like we belong to him and being obedient to his will. Folks, listen, we, we, we don't gain brownie points. God doesn't love us more because of our faithfulness. But because we love him, because we fear disappointing him, we want to follow him and do his will. I want, I want to remind you this morning, I hope you're reminding yourself of the blessings of walking in faith with the Lord. Let's remind ourselves that God disciplines every son he receives. And let's remind ourselves this morning anyway, that the consequences of my sin are not just personal, but they're, they're, it, I am responsible and I am accountable for my own sin. But my sin hurts you and my sin hurts my family and my sin hurts anyone that I'm connected with. But not just my sin, your sin does. I want to call out some of your names, not because I know you're sinning, but I want to make it really personal. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But, but your sin, your sin, remind yourself of those things. But here's the second thing they were doing. They were renewing themselves. I mean, this worship service on Mount Ebal and, and Mount uh, Gerizim, after the defeat and victory at Ai and Bethel, this is a renewal of themselves to the covenant of God. They are reaffirming their covenant with God. They are reaffirming, God, you are our God, and we're going to follow you. They did a terrible job of it. They never followed well. But at least they're on the mountain claiming we are renewing our covenant. Now, I'd like us to do so much better than, than, than Israel, the nation, because you know what? We're, we're not a nation of people of just people who have an association by birth, we're a nation of redeemed people. We're a nation of people who are all changed and different because of Jesus. At least that's what we're supposed to be. And, and so therefore, you know, when we renew ourselves, hopefully we're really reaffirming our love for Jesus and our heart for Jesus. And you know, every Sunday morning ought to be a reminder to us, but it, also be a, it ought to be a renewal to us that we are renewing our covenant with God. And it's really his covenant with us. I mean, it's the new covenant that he made with us in his blood that he has done all that's necessary for us to overcome death, the wages of our sin, and to give us eternal life with him forever and ever, not by effort, not by works, but because we trust him, 
because we love him, because we seek him, because of faith. And I just, I pray that this morning would be a renewal for every one of us. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. Father, we've come here today as your people. We've come here, Lord, as as the sons and daughters of God by faith in Jesus. And we've come here today because um, we want to, we want to reaffirm the, we want to reaffirm you. We want to remind ourselves. We want to remind ourselves, Lord, of who you are to us, what you've done for us, of the covenant you've made with us. We want to remind ourselves of the blessings of faith and faithfulness. We want to, we want to just remember today. We come every Sunday to remember, God, who you are and what you've done. And we come here this morning to do more than that, though, Father. It's to renew ourselves to you, to reaffirm our covenant with you, Lord, to reaffirm our faith, to say, Lord, how grateful we are that Christ, uh, Christ alone bore our sin so that by grace alone we could be forgiven and we could have eternal life with you forever and ever and ever in a kingdom that's, that's going to be just wonderful. And we've come to renew and reaffirm our covenant this morning. Father, I would pray for every one of us listening to my voice, Lord, that we would turn from sin, that we would deal with sin quickly in our lives, that we would not allow sin to take deeper and deeper roots, but rather we would just turn from it and, and just walk in holiness before you. Help us to do that, Father. Father, I pray that uh, if there's someone here, not here, but just someone listening to this someday who does not have faith in you, may today be their day of putting their faith in you and being born again. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for holding the rain off. We do love you and we pray this prayer because Jesus is our Savior, because he lives because of him. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.